Howdy do, y'all. I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and western country music pioneer, Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find The Ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Buckle up for an unfiltered dose of comedy. Full disclosure, I've had a lot of sex, but honestly, having sex with me is like buying a Prius. It's much quieter than you'd expect. Epics presents Unprotected Sets. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, my name is John Paul Kermy. I am a breathwork teacher. I'm really excited to be doing this new podcast with my good friend Feldy called Hang Up. That's right, I'm John Feldman. I'm in a band called Goldfinger. John Paul taught me breathwork, it changed my life. We're talking about solutions to problems today. Listen to Hang Ups on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. y'all i'm uncle drank star of the ballad of uncle drank it is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me fictional golf and western country music pioneer uncle drank the series also stars luke wilson brian kelly chelsea lynn kinky friedman and billy zane as a talking blender named blendy you can find the ballad of uncle drank on sirius xm pandora stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts Hey guys, welcome to the show today. It's Scott Lips on today's show, Shepard Ferry. Shepard Ferry, as you know, is an artist, an activist. Shepard Ferry is one of the most important American contemporary street artists. He also happens to be a graphic designer, an activist, illustrator, and founder of Obey, the clothing brand. He has an ad agency. There's nothing this guy doesn't do. I'm a big fan of street art. I've been a big fan of Shepard Ferry for quite some time. I'm pretty excited to have him here. Uh, if you don't know, Shepard Ferry kind of came on the scene by doing the Andre the Giant sticker many years ago and then went on to do the most famous Obama poster ever, the Obama Hope poster. Um, excited to have him here just a moment. And also, just as a side note, make sure you download the show. It's a podcast. It's on Spotify, iTunes, rate and review the show. Super helpful to us. Super excited in just a moment to have Mr. Shepard Ferry in the studio with us. So welcome to the show, Shepard Ferry. How are you, my man? I'm good. You good? Same busy, the usual stuff. Summer um, days. Thanks for coming out on this beautiful summer day here. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. I wore this shirt as sort of an homage to you because I know you started in sort of the punk rock skateboard movement. So I don't know if this shirt, I'm wearing a Sonic Youth shirt for those of you who can't see, but I don't know if this shirt uh, rings it's, true to you at all. Of, co- of course it does because yeah. it's, a, it's a Raymond Pettibone illustration. Pettibone did all the art for, for Black Flag. He did the Black Flag logo almost all their album covers and flyers and uh, he's one of my favorite artists awesome is it safe to say that your beginnings in sort of you know the skateboard community and punk rock or whatnot kind of led you to where you are today was that your biggest inspiration was there film involved was it music i know it's sort of a combination of everything i believe but um yeah just talk about because i kind of like to take it back to the beginning so we're going to start kind of you in rhode island and south carolina and your upbringing and whatnot but i i actually like to talk about 
sort of the beginnings of where your art came from. And I know music and skateboarding had a lot to do with it. And I don't know if you know my background, but I'm Courtney Love's drummer on top of a million other things. So my background is also a little bit in punk rock and obviously rock and roll. So, Yeah, well, um, I love to draw from the time I was a little kid, but I, I grew up in South Carolina where it's very traditional. There's not a lot of avant-garde art. So discovering skateboarding and punk rock was extremely important for me because that was... Um, you know, rebellious, progressive culture where art was used in a way that wasn't just decorative. It was it was really used as like provocative too, right? a, a tool of the revolution in a way. Yeah. And um, and and I needed I needed that outlet because um, you know, my framework was very preppy country club, uh, South centri- Carolina, centri- right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, and and I was um, I was sort of a you know uh, restless kid, but I didn't know why. And then I discovered an alternative to that preppy mentality and you know the, the just the southern way of life and um and it was it was a it was a bridge to the the broader world that was really important for me and and exhilarating you know making um the connection between what winston smith did for the dead kennedys as art and what jello was saying in the lyrics and then of course the visceral side of the of the music itself it was like a, a whole ecosystem to Definitely. to get to be part of and you know the clash were huge for me bad brains black flag the misfits and all, almost all these groups had really awesome, um, provocative visuals. And, and, uh, and, you know, all the stuff was, it was cool, but it wasn't intimidating. It didn't feel like you had to be some sort of virtuoso painter or something to, uh, to execute that kind of work. So it also, it also made me a, a little less um, fearful of jumping in the mix, making stencils, making homemade T-shirts. And skateboarding culture was the same way. It was, uh, you know, punk rock and skateboarding were hand in hand in the in the 80s yeah did you see a lot of the punk rock flyers growing up or were they more references in books because i grew up um in the late 80s here we used to flyer the city you know bands used to come here james addiction whoever yeah and we would put our flyers on telephone poles and a band would come and put their flyer on top of that and you would basically plaster the town with your flyers until someone took them down or you got in trouble or whatever it may be and that was the way pre-internet that bands used to promote themselves so were these punk rock flyers sort of like hanging around or were they more like book references that you'd seen well, I wish there were there were books. I did ha- I did um, manage to get a hold of a couple of Sex Pistols books. Um, you know, they were they were sort of like you know the 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 punk rock band that actually cracked the mainstream in a way. Um, but I did a year of um, art boarding school out here in Idlewild, and we'd come into L.A. and we took a trip to San Francisco, and I was. Uh, grabbing flyers. I saw the Circle Jerks in South Carolina. They're the only punk awesome. band that came through. I was going to say Carolina. there wasn't a lot of punk rock bands playing right. in South Carolina at right. that time. Yeah. In 1986. I also went with a friend, took a trip from Charleston to New York. Somehow before the internet, we found out that um, one end of the week, the Smiths were playing on the Queen is Dead tour. The other end of the week, it was GBH, uh, Seven Seconds, the Cro-Mags, Toxic Reasons, and the Effigies at the Amazing. Ritz. Amazing. And, uh, and I went all around the city because those flyers were posted up everywhere and waited till the night when it rained and and it was the the wheat paste was soggy enough to carefully peel it off the wall i still took them home i still have that amazing amazing Uh, so so it's funny so your references were were heavy punk rock and skateboarding and you um you went to school and wrote on art school i feel like a lot of great musicians also go to art school too and um, you sort of got into early on, for people that don't know, but I think most people know they're listening to the show, Andre the Giant was a huge, sort of your huge breakthrough, and you started stickering the whole city with these Andre the Giant has a posse stickers. 
And uh, and yeah. was that sort of the early beginnings? Because you had made T-shirts before, right? Like rock and roll T-shirts that you were kind of that was sort of your inception into this art world. Would you say? It, yeah, it was. Um, I mean, the, the funny thing, uh, I had made ho- homemade Sex Pistols and uh, Husker Du and, and, and Misfits and, uh, you know, independent trucks, the skateboard truck company. I just made my own versions of shirts I either couldn't afford or couldn't find. And, um, and you know, I, I liked the idea of it being kind of my um, idiosyncratic take on something that was a signifier for all my, uh, you know, uh, cultural peers. But um, But then when I got to... Rhode Island School of Design, uh, that's when I really started to, to discover graffiti as a subculture and then also hip-hop culture because and I think by the late 80s, most punk rock and hardcore had sort of painted themselves into a corner of a, you know, a bunch of angry guys, and, uh, and I was looking to broaden my horizons. Funny you brought up Jane's Addiction because I went to go see uh, the Ramones with Jane's Addiction Opening, and that was sort of uh, you know the first time I thought about okay, there's this new zone that's not classic rock and it's not punk rock, Stands but from, it's yeah, it's a combination. Yeah, it's like a you know it's alternative, and um, the but anyway, I um, you know I I decided that groups like Public Enemy and N- NWA were sort of the new punk rock in a sense that you know people who are angry and uh, turn, it, was, it was a new punk rock. Yeah, not yeah. not not virtuoso musicians, but like making records by you know these these other methods that were very diy creative and um and so you know i was sort of just into all of the stuff that had that spirit and my crew of skateboarders um you know sometimes we call ourselves uh it was the watershed team shed and the team the you know the team team shed or the shed crew or uh sometimes the posse (laughs) so when i made this homemade um stencil uh, trying to teach another friend how to make a stencil of Andre the Giant which was a sort of a, a random thing that I found in the newspaper I had liked wrestling as a young kid but you know when I found out that um it was all staged it was it was like oh man what and the Easter Bunny's not real and there's no <laughs> right. Santa Claus um, and you didn't, know, he, didn't your friend say to you that's a bad idea yeah he thought it was stupid and, yeah. then, and then I said well um yeah, what are you talking about, man? Andres Poss has taken over. Team Shed has played. Um, and because, you know, 10 people know about that. we got to narrow the circle, man. That's a sellout territory. 10 plus. Definitely. In all know. fairness, wrestlers back then, look, you had like Mil Mascaris and Roddy Piper, I believe. Maybe that was a little bit later. But I remember Mil Mascaris and Andre the Giant. So I guess wrestlers also looked kind of cooler back then. Oh, yeah, right? You did. could basically, you know, your whole visual of what wrestling was was probably a lot easier to pinpoint because the identity was so strong back then. Were you a wrestling fan or were you like a passive uh, you know, fan like me? I, I've been sort of a passing fan. I mean, I like to watch it on uh, Sunday on cable when I was when I was like 11 years old. But um, it, it wasn't it wasn't it was something that I thought was uh, was kind of cool in a kitsch way. The way that I liked Kiss, the band. Right. You know, um, I still like Kiss. Yeah, I still do, too. And, <laughs> and the Melvins being such Kiss fans uh, really um, made me have a deeper appreciation for Kiss because I think the Melvins are um one of the best bands ever. Definitely. So. And the Nirvana connection. Yeah, yeah, sure. totally. Um, so, so it's funny because you start this campaign and actually this place called The Living Room had actually put it, there was sort of an article in the paper from what I read that they were like, if you can figure out 
what this Andre the Giant campaign is all about, you're going to get free tickets to one of the punk rock shows coming up, right? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, and the nice paper had a circulation of 15,000. They run this contest and I wanted those tickets, but I, I didn't want to, you know, part of w what I thought appealed about the campaign was the mystery. So I didn't want to say, hey, yeah, I'm Shepard Ferry. I make those. Can I please have my tickets? So I just dropped some stickers off in an envelope that said, I can't tell you what, what it is because that would spoil it, but here's some stickers if it's any consolation. And then the following week, the nice paper ran the image of the Andre sticker again, and it said no definitive answers, but at least now we have a handwriting sample. <laughs> right. But, you know, I, I was doing... It was, was like CSI or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Andre was, the Giant CSI. It was, it was amazing, but I was working a 425 an hour skate shop job. I'd made maybe, maybe 1,500 stickers total, and within two weeks, the nice paper had you know, reproduced 30,000 images of that, and I realized, oh, you know what? Part of this game is just manipulating the media. Yeah. Um, I think you know. it still is, right? Yeah, I mean, oh, of it's course. Still, so I mean, there would be no, no President Trump if that weren't the case. No, so no question. That's a good and a bad thing. <laughs> but, um, was, so was, was graffiti sort of part of the, the same way the graffiti you know, and artists, graffiti artists would sort of tag their work and you had to go around the city to kind of find you know, where the tags would appear. It was almost like a treasure hunt. Was that sort of the inspiration oh, yeah. behind the stickering and how that all started for you? Well, you know, I, I loved, um, first few times I went to New York, I was fascinated by just the volume of graffiti and the risk that people would go through to climb crazy places. And I love the spirit of that. Um, but I wanted to do it with stuff that was a little bit less cryptic. So the Andre thing, still cryptic, but um, it, it, it was, you know, at least it, it wasn't like, that comes from a subculture that uh, that that I'll never understand. So I'm just gonna ignore it as like you know it's another another piece of ivy growing up somewhere that I don't like, but it's not really my thing. The Andre thing, I think almost everyone treated it like a Rorschach test. Like uh, this thing is a cult. It's a skateboard company. <laughs> right. It's a band. It's that you know people were very uh, you know uh, comfortable giving an interpretation and I, I love I loved that side of it that there was uh, it would create conversations and it would also create conversations about what's valid in public space which became the most interesting thing to me because what it made me realize was my little bit of mischief was disrupting the normal control the normal flow the normal mm. flow is you're a consumer you passively get to receive this advertising information or this government signage information and um, and you don't participate in this conversation. Then you know when you put stuff up, it's like, wait a second, this isn't supposed to be a two-way conversation. Right, right. And I, I like that because yeah. you know I've always had a mischievous side. No question. And at some point, you um, you did a billboard, right, of the Andre the Giant. Was that sort of your first when things started clicking for you? You were like, I think people are really taking to the sneaker campaign, uh, sneaker the, the, the sticker campaign, not sneaker. The sticker campaign that I'm doing. So I think at this point we should sort of take it up a notch and, and do a billboard, right? And that was sort of your bit of a first bit of a legal activity, more or less, would you say, in yeah, terms I'm, of like a bigger project and sort of taking it to the next step? Yeah, I had been um, putting up a lot of stickers and even some small stencils, but um, I had an assignment at, uh, at uh, the Rhode Island School of Design, which I'll call RISD for short from now on. Um, which was uh, an illustration class, and the teacher passed around a hat with fortune cookies in it, and the assignment was illustrate your fortune cookie insert. I'd seen this billboard of Buddy Cianci running for mayor, which just had him holding his hand up, waving, and said, Cianci, he never stopped caring about Providence. I was like, what the he, hell? He was a bit of a dubious character, yeah, too. Yeah, what right? is that supposed to mean? <laughs> right. I knew that he had a, a sorted past, but I didn't really know much detail about it, but I just thought, 
that's meaningless. Um, I want to do something to that billboard. And um, so my fortune cookie said to affect the quality of the day is no small achievement. And I thought that's open ended enough. <laughs> right. I, uh, <laughs> Let me take on this billboard. Yeah. So so I made a, you know, 64, 11 by 17 copies taped together to make an eight and a half foot Andre head and put a sign in his hand that said, join the posse and got up there with a, uh, a couple lookouts staged on the corner with glue and um, a roller and, and just, you know, did it. It was my very first time doing something and I was totally winging it. And luckily it wasn't a windy night and I was able to do it. Yeah. How did you um, sort of know how to do that? I mean, was it just sort of trial and error? You just like, did someone show you how to paste things and we paste? No, and- no one, no one showed me. I just thought, well, Elmer's glue works with stuff and it's not <laughs> right. very expensive. I'll mix that up. I'll put it in a rolling pan. And then later on, I found out that like, that's one of the least effective ways right. to do it. But falls um, down like 10 yeah, minutes later. Yeah, but, but you know, <laughs> it, it, it worked for what I was doing. But um, And it was I mean, actually, in fact, the biggest PR sort of thing that could happen to you, right? Because he ended up writing a letter to you and whatnot. And, and oh, this. yeah. So and talk it, about how that whole thing transpired because I think it's super interesting. Well, um, Providence being not that big, uh, a friend that I skated with went to school with Cianci's daughter. And she was like, oh. I think that's that guy goes to RISD. I think his name is Shepard or something. So then RISD security started sniffing around. They picked up my portfolio that had some uncut Andre sticker sheets in it, and uh, and you know then they brought me in, and and you know they were ready to they were ready to uh, you know put out cigarettes on my on my face and and put the hot light on me, and they were like. Uh, do you know why you're here? I said, because that billboard I did. And it just, oh, they deflated. Like, they didn't get to do any torture at all. <laughs> right. And um, But then I had to go apologize to Cianci and talk about how I was going to make restitution. And I had to turn myself into the police also. Wow. But Cianci, because then I soon found out that he had a history for having a temper and being a brute and literally putting out cigars on a guy and beating him with a fireplace uh, log and a poker, um, for sleeping with his ex-wife, a guy who was a city oh contractor. God. This is like you can't you, know, you can't make real, this shit you, up. No, no. It's like I was going to say, wasn't there a mob? I was going to say, wasn't yeah. there a mob mentality yeah. to this? Yes, and and yes. clearly, there was. So, Cianci need needed to rehabilitate his image as a as a brute, as well as me needing to do some sort of restitution. So, he had me into his house. I just skateboarded. It was close to RISD, literally like three blocks from RISD. So, I skate over there. He's got his henchmen and I come in and I go into this, you know, oak paneled library with a fireplace. And uh, I, I just first thing I did was look at the fireplace and, and the two henchmen <laughs> look at CNC and be like, <laughs> you, it's OK, you can stand over there. It'll be all right. We, you, we, you're good, you know. And uh, and, and then they said, um, CNC said, uh, so, you know, this billboard cost us a lot of money. Um but uh, you, you know, do I don't, a great accent, by the way. I don't want to take you out of school. Um, have you ever worked with uh, any city kids or something like that? And uh, and I was like, uh, I'm the teacher's assistant in in the screen printing class. And he said, uh, <laughs> Yeah, you know, think about a good project to do with the kids, and uh, and then um, you know, we'll we'll work it out. And, I, and here's my number. And um, <laughs> and, and he and he gave me his his monogrammed foil stamped letterhead and uh, and his number. It just said buddy. And uh, and then. Um, a, about five days later, there's a, a, an article in the newspaper that says, um, Cianci um, uh, resolves billboard prank. And it said, uh, you know, that he's going to get me to do this art workshop with uh, at-risk inner-city youth. And he doesn't want to interrupt my education because uh, he just wants me to put my art to more um, constructive use. And, and I realized this guy saw an amazing 
PR opportunity here. Yeah, and he took it. He doesn't really care whether I ever actually do the project. I'm not even going to bother calling him. <laughs> I never called him, never heard from him, never heard from the cops. And, and that was that other than that I was on disciplinary probation at the school. And, the, uh, you know, the school was um, the school security were more mad at me than than the RISD cop. I mean, than the Providence cops. Meanwhile, the security that he had was like, you better watch a kid or you're yeah. going to end up in the river or something. <laughs> right. I heard, right? right. Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's what yeah. everyone said. They're like. Yeah. They're like, dude, you're dead. You know this guy? You're dead. This um, is Rhode Island. Yeah, you know yeah. What's going exactly, on here? Yeah. Exactly. So that's funny. But, so, um, and did you have, were there a lot of film references that you were sort of taking in at that point too? I mean, because obviously you had the skateboard references and the punk rock references, but what were the sort of the directors? Were you, look, were you watching like Blade Runner or was it, uh, you know, what kind of films were you watching at that point from a, so because a well, lot of your work has a, a heavy graphical sort of yeah, take Yeah, yeah. I mean, so. I, I love, um, I love I love movies, but really, um, at that point, I would say it was more things like uh, dystopian literature, like Orwell, nineteen eighty four, okay. Ray, Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit four five one, um, and then and then the lyrics of people like The Clash and, and the Dead Kennedys and uh, Black Flag with a, you know a song like Police Story, which is super hardcore about you know fighting with the police. Um, but then I I saw a movie in the early 90s called They Live. Oh, right, sure. And John, that's, that's where the Obey came yeah, from, Yeah, right? ex- exactly. John, yeah. John Carpenter's movie. And um, with starring, coincidentally, Rowdy Roddy Piper. Right. So immediately... A wrestler, I for was, those of you who don't know. Yeah, I was intrigued by this movie. It was in the dollar bin at the grocery store. I was really broke. So at night, I would rent from the dollar bin at the grocery store. And because, um, you know, Blockbuster, that was like... You know, too luxurious for me at the right. time. And um, you mean in the supermarket they had the dollar bin? <laughs> yeah, or yeah, yeah. They, yeah, yeah, they did. It's it's yeah. it's Providence. You know, you yeah. could you could get like you know your your car smog tested and <laughs> rent videos and <laughs> at Ralph's. <laughs> yeah, whatever, yeah. yeah. Like, but um, anyway, I uh, so I would cut my I would print my stickers and then cut them while I was watching movies. And I watched They Live, not expecting much, and it turned out to be a really profound concept in the in the in the film. I mean, you know. Uh, everyone should see it, but it's basically about um, using aliens um, controlling humans as a metaphor for uh, the you know the average person being too caught up in the in the in the rat race, keeping up with the Joneses to understand the insidious the insidious forces of manipulation that um, you know that they're they're subjected to, and I liked that a lot. And the and that's wor- where the obey the, wor- came the word from. obey was uh, was used in that film, you know, as well as a lot of other great slogans like you know consume marry and reproduce sleep question nothing so that was that was a big inspiration for you definitely especially on the obey campaign that you did after that of course from then i had been using the word giant because of andre the giant with most of my work but i I, uh, quickly started to replace that with mostly obey and the, the, the reason was that obey is something that i think we all sometimes do subconsciously uh, follow the path of least resistance, try not to rock the boat, fit in. Um, but then when someone tells you obey and they, you know, they, they, they make it something you're conscious of, you, you're forced to say, is this something I agree with? Is this something I want to submit to? And so that idea of consciously choosing and analyzing uh, what the variables are that go into the choice. That was something that I thought was uh, was important. And um, So at that point, you took Andre the Giant's image, you sort of fine-tuned it a little bit, and, and you put the word obey on yeah, that sort I, of work. I, you right? know, I wanted to move away from the wrestling reference, so I did an abstraction that I call the icon face that is, 
you know, it, it's, it's based on um, the characteristics of the Andre face, but it's really, really, uh, it's really abstracted and, and transformed into something, um, you know, that's almost, almost feels like, a, a, you know, like a, a a corporate logo from a from a very um, ominous, malevolent corporation. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, so it's, it's funny. So you have all these references. You have Warhol, Lichtenstein, the Dead Kennedys. You have the Clash. You have They Live and whatnot. And if you put all those into a blender, that's sort of how the uh, the beginnings of your art career kind of started, right? Yeah. And so it's interesting because you're not only just an artist. I mean, you do so much more than that at this point. You're sort of you have an ad agency. You have Obey the Clothing Line. You're also a graphic illustrator and so and an activist, obviously. So there's yeah. almost like nothing that you don't do at this point. So I kind of want to jump into all that. But after that, how did you at, at what point did you start thinking, you know what, this is really clicking with culture. I did the sticker thing. I did Obey and people are really starting to take to what I'm doing. Was that sort of the point with the Obey sort of campaign that you did that you started realizing this could be sort of a commerce route for me? Or did you we're not even thinking I'll just stick to my T-shirts and maybe <laughs> I'll do the I'll do the Obey campaign and maybe I'll make some your money in between printing the t-shirts and whatnot well um i had made uh homemade t-shirts and then as i got good at screen printing while i was in college i decided that i wanted to screen print for a living because it was a way to do contract work for people to just earn money but also have that equipment at my disposal to make my own work and i thought i was going to end up having my version of warhol's factory in a in a providence warehouse with a skateboard ramp in it and um it didn't turn out that glamorous you know i didn't have the uh you know my era's version of the velvet underground and, <laughs> right. and mick jagger and and, and iggy the pop factory stop, and stopping by right. um it, we could uh, still do that by the way <laughs> <laughs> it was um it was it was a very very uh desperate time of struggle for me because I was making so little money but I was out there putting my work up and slowly but surely I started to get opportunities in places like Boston and New York where um, I would get invited to do be part of art shows or museum shows and do little pop-up skateboard things but it was all um, you know cool for a scene but not generating any revenue and uh, and so you had graduated college at that yeah, point yeah i graduated college and so what year is this around um well i graduated college in 92 but i started my screen printing business in 91 okay. i was uh but um by 96 i was really far in debt and so i decided um that i would move to california and work with a friend of mine who offered me a job in the skateboard industry helping him but he also said I'll allow you to keep making your stuff under the roof of my business so I could keep my you know my t-shirts and stuff and my posters and my stickers and everything going I'd have that latitude he he appreciated what I was doing so what was the name of his business uh it was called Sophisto Clothing and he was oh. the guy who founded um co-founded New Deal Skateboards and Element Skateboards, oh, which cool. he called at that time Underworld Element. Okay. And, um, so you take the job there. You're still doing your art on the side. Yeah. And, um, you know, the, the, the clothing thing really did not work out for either of us because it's such a tough business. So I more or less um, shelved that. But luckily, some guys from San Francisco were like, well, we want to keep making some shirts for you and we'll we'll see if we can sell them to some uh, record stores and maybe urban outfitters boutiques and uh and was we'll it called obey the clothing at that point or it was, was it, some, it was, another it was, name or it was called giant then. giant okay yeah and um and then uh i became a graphic designer i learned how to use the computer and um a lot of the screen printing i was doing was very design heavy but i 
I went to art school when the computer wasn't a tool for design right. yet. So I was just doing everything cut and paste and by hand using a stat camera and all the traditional stuff. And then I learned how to use the computer. And um, the good thing was I was a solid illustrator, so I could offer graphic design plus illustration. Sol- plus illustration. Yeah. And so that, you know, that, that gave me a little bit more appeal, I think, for, for you know, record labels and um, some m- movie companies and, you know, I mean, other clothing companies, all sorts of people were starting to hire me and my and, and Andy, the guy that brought me in, and our other friend Dave, who did the DC Shoes logo, who was part of our, our little collective. Um, but I worked a two-shift day. I worked on graphic design for clients during the day, and some of the clients were cool. Some were not that cool. It was just what I needed to do to survive. And then at night, I went and I... Um, printed my own art and then I put it up on the streets. And it's funny, you're still doing a lot of that stuff. You have a whole yeah. team of people, you have an ad agency, yeah. 20 people working for you, whatnot. But it's, I actually saw you, I'm pretty sure this was you uh, at Basel uh, in Wynwood, like painting a mural some a few years back yeah, yeah. on like a side yeah. street. And I was like, oh, there's Shepard Ferry. Like, where's his team? And I was like, he, can, he does this all by himself, no, which I, is pretty I, amazing. I like, have a couple of assistants, but like, yeah, I'm involved in painting every mural. It's and, amazing. I love it. It's you know to me the, doing the big stuff outdoors is um, it's hard work. It's like you know pretty grueling blue collar work. But seeing something unfold on a large scale, if you've ever felt powerless, which I think most of us have, transforming a landscape in front of your eyes is Amazing. pretty it's pretty yeah. empowering. So what was so. the first mural you, you actually did? Well, I did a lot of I used to do a lot of smaller murals, um, wheat pasting things in a modular way, tiling up and going, you know, I did some stuff that was pretty big that way, but it's not permanent. So around 2009, 2010 was when I started to switch over to painting the murals. And I, I did we, a, we skipped over 2008, which we have to talk about your iconic Obama poster, right? We sort of, sure, we, that sure. was such a, a pivotal uh, moment in your life. So up until that point, you're at, you know, you're at your friend's company and you're starting to do all stuff and then companies are starting to hire you. And at that point, had you, so you started doing a few murals in between there and then that you kind of started well, to take shape of what you were doing? It, it was mostly illegal stuff. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was doing some murals. They just weren't with permission. Right, so, right. Yeah, I mean, most of the stuff was um, either the smaller posters that I could put on the electrical boxes at, in, in a place like L.A. where everybody stops at the corner at the stoplight and bam, they're right there. Or I would do the, the eight-foot ones that were a couple of strips of paper put together that I could... Um, you know, some of the images were painted so that it was red and black and, and white, and some of them were just black and white. But I could do those. But then I was also printing things like um, wallpapers so that I could tile up and repeat. And then, um, and then the normal 18 by 24 prints that I would make so that I could do grids like a Warhol style, just repeat. Yeah. And then the wallpaper and then something figurative that was larger. So it started to evolve where all these little elements I could have in a messenger bag show up to almost any size wall and figure out how to do what looked like a fairly resolved mural there. Amazing. And you had your signatures. So you had the star and different things that would yeah, make it yeah, very yeah, Shepherd ex- Ferry. Exactly. It's funny because we also just saw someone at the coffee shop, which I think had possibly your star on his leg. And we were like, that looks exactly like... Jen and I saw this guy that looked like Shepard Ferry's star on his leg. We were like, is that Shepard Ferry's star on your leg? 
So yeah, it's even to this day resonating probably in tattoos and whatnot in your design that you started back then. What, it was the star and what else were sort of your signature in, in, yeah, in your beginning the, early work? So the star and then the, the star that's sort of inside the uh, like like the mechanical gear device, which right. was you know my, my love of uh, Russian constructivists, the celebration of, of the worker and the means of production. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, so the star and the, and the, and the gear and then um, just the icon face, which kind of looks like my version of you know, big, big Brother cropped into a rectangle um so the, those are the main things and then i have several different obey word marks and uh one of the word marks people know me for is the is the red box with a white type that everyone thinks um is supreme invented but actually it was the artist barbara kruger who invented right. it you know 20 years before there was a supreme or an obey definitely and with the um, idea of sort of provoking with your art right looking at early punk rock as sort of that template right you wanted to provoke and have a conversation with your art and sort of yeah. and eventually use it you know in the activism space to do a lot of good too um but i think initially right it was sort of based on that punk rock ideology it, it was, of, of provoking and, and starting a conversation yeah, yeah snapping people out of this sort of uh waking trance of the status quo initially and just yeah being a provocateur i um i, I loved the idea of being disruptive but then you know i i did early on start to make some pieces about um, police brutality, uh, you know, surveillance, racism, but then it really didn't get um, topical on a regular basis until Bush was elected, and then and then I thought, okay, yeah, I finally got to get involved in this. Uh, <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, all, right, all right, yeah, I um I can't um I can't just deal with platitudes. I got to be a little more specific. Definitely, and, and before that, because I'm going to talk about the Obama Hope poster in a minute, you did have your design studio from like '97 to 2003. And you did a lot of work for clients like Pepsi and Hasbro and Netscape. And at that point, it was like, again, kind of using art in the way of commerce. And that was yeah. your first real big, I guess, uh, sort of collaboration with brands at that point. Was it not sort of? Yeah, it was. And, um, you know, I, I enjoyed doing that stuff because it was a good exercise creatively and, um, and figuring out how to, you know, hear a creative brief from someone and solve the problem in a way that I would be um, you know, proud of the result aesthetically was was cool. Sometimes I didn't um, I didn't have any emotional connection to what you know Pepsi was doing. I was sort of take it or leave it. But I did like that they were helping me stay alive as a, as a creative person. And um, were there any brands that came to you that you just were like, I won't work for this brand. It's just oh, not. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that happened all the time. We can talk and, about the ones that aren't around anymore. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, we can talk about the ones that are. You know, Camel Cigarettes is still around. Right, and I, I said right. no to them. Yeah. Um, I said no to... Hummer isn't around anymore, which is great. But, yeah. I, you know, I did work for the Sierra Club in the 90s, and the idea of doing something for, you know, for Hummer, which, you know, is as gas-guzzling car as you can find, yeah. I, I just wasn't going to do it. It was... Um, you know, there were other things to, like, skateboard companies that I didn't think make good products that, that um, you know, would offer me a decent amount of money. But I just needed to maintain my dignity and my credibility in the world that helped to make me who I am. And so, yeah, there's just certain principles I, Definitely. I'm, I'm, you know, got to be true to. So it's interesting, even as a starving artist initially, right, if a brand came to you and said, hey, here's a half million dollars, Shepard, but... You, we don't like the product. You still turned it down, or because of that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, I mean, luckily, I didn't have to make choices on that scale. Nobody was offering <laughs> right. me half a well, million. you know, dollars, whatever but, it was. Pro- even but, um, you know, fifty thousand was yeah, probably yeah, quite a lot yeah, of money yeah, back yeah. There then, were, right? There were some difficult choices to Definitely. make. It's hard. But it's a hard decision. You know, once you um, once once your credibility is in question, it's really hard to restore it. Definitely, especially as an artist. And and at that point. 
before you did the Obama poster, were you starting to do some of the album covers that you eventually started? Because I know you work for Zeppelin, which is probably the, you know, the holy grail of any artist to do something for Zeppelin um, is, is probably the coolest thing you could probably ever do. And, and, to, and for me, uh, as a drummer, too, I mean, Bonham and whatnot, it's the yeah. coolest reference. I mean, congrats, because that's a pretty incredible accomplishment. And the Pumpkins and Anthrax and a bunch of other bands. And I actually, some of your art also, I, I think a lot of it even references those old concert posters. So, oh, yeah, um, yeah. I think Huge I inspiration thought, for me. Yeah. Um, well, uh, you know, I started off doing a lot of stuff for smaller bands, and then somehow uh as as my work got out there more some some bigger bands started coming to me and i've, I've done things for the rolling stones the doors a um, couple of small bands <laughs> yeah um and zeppelin uh, zeppelin of course yeah. i've done two two album covers for zeppelin um, tom petty's live anthology um and his uh, uh American Treasure that came out um, shortly after he died, but um, you so know, what, the, what years were the, the so the, the biggest one it, was it sort of in two thousand and five when you started to get those calls? When, well, two thousand five was when I did the Walk the Line movie poster and looking at how I could make sure that the image, even though it was of Joaquin Phoenix's silhouette, that it felt just essentially Johnny Cash, Definitely. and you know looking. At, um, back at old hat show posters for Elvis and, and, and Johnny Cash and, um, you know, where that overlapped with my aesthetic sensibility and then merging all that together, I, I just thought, well, this is a poster I would like if I saw it. And it, um, it, it did really well. And a lot of music people saw that because it was a pretty su- successful movie. Definitely. But, you know, even prior to that, I had done, um, my old partner and I had done... Um, Black Eyed Peas, uh, Ella Funk cover, and then we also did the, the, the Monkey Business cover. And, you know, uh, Will I Am was an acquaintance. Uh, you know, I'm not a huge fan of the Black Eyed Peas, but, I, but it was, you know, a, a good, it was a good job to get. And, Definitely. And, and they were a I massive mean, band. Yeah, I mean, the yeah, they sold like 10 million records. No so all of a sudden, that's putting my work in, in front of a lot of people. And it wasn't that I then wanted to do more kind of pop stuff like that, but what it did when you when you deal with people who are operating at a higher level commercially, they frequently are looking for both what they think is cool and what they think is uh, gonna gonna be successful commercially. And somehow I had like Merged you know managed yeah managed managed to 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 crack that code. That's awesome. Well, I actually want to come back in a moment and talk about the Obama Post. And uh, we'll be back in just a few moments with the one and only Shepard Ferry. You're listening to Lip Service. You're listening to Lips LA with Scott Lips. We're back. We're with Shepard Ferry. We were just checking out Nirvana Drain You. And we were just talking about uh, Interpol. We're kind of jumping all around. But um, Shepard, we were just talking how you know Paul and Daniel and those guys. Good guys, right? Yeah, they're great. Um, when, you know, when I discovered their first record in 2002 i fell in love with it immediately and uh and happened to meet them at at coachella and so we ended up working on some some stuff for their second album antics and uh, i did portraits of them and prince and uh we did a a launch party at our our space in the wiltern theater so you know uh, i had never i'd gotten to work with a lot of older bands that were not maybe they were more more in the waning years of right. their careers. And it was very exciting for me. At least it wasn't Ario Speedwagon or something. <laughs> it was, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, I do, I do have limits. Yeah. Um, but uh, the, the, um, and the, the opportunity work, to work with Interpol guys who I think were making really great music, had a very, very so- sophisticated 
aesthetic sensibility that they liked what I was doing. It was uh, it was sort of a dream project for me. So did that in 2004, and I think that um, you know that put my my work in front of some other people. I, I got to then work with people like uh, Mission of Burma. After that, I mean, I've worked with so many musicians. I've done a bunch of stuff with Henry Rollins. Definitely, and it's actually I was going to say yeah. it was one of the interviews I was watching. It was a great interview you guys did together, and that was actually one of the connections I knew because musically I know that we're into a lot of the same bands and whatnot. Yeah. Um, but I do want to at 2008. So. You know, all this presidential stuff, the, the race is starting around you. And you're like, I got I to gotta jump into this because at the end of the day, you don't want to stay silent and, and you, had, you had something to say, right? So how did the Obama poster come about? What sort of led to it? Because it is arguably maybe your most famous piece of work that people know you from, right? Yeah, yeah, it is. It is um, unexpectedly. I had been doing a lot of work protesting Bush and the Iraq war. And um, when I saw Obama's speech at the 2004 DNC. I was, I was impressed with that. And then uh, I never even heard of the guy until that day. And then, and then in 2000, late 2007, when he announced he was running, I thought, yeah, you know, I, I, li- I like this guy. I did some more research about him, um, thought he was very eloquent, liked his policy positions. And, um, and then I asked a friend of mine that knew somebody in the campaign, hey, if I designed an image in support of him, would uh, would that be an unwelcome endorsement? Because I'd done a lot of things that were kind of controversial. My pr- my big art show right before then was called E Pluribus Venom. So, <laughs> and you were arrested like 18 times, uh, yeah, right? Yeah. Is I, that I think, correct? Is that an accurate? I, I think I was only at 15 at that okay. point, but still, yeah, I had a, yeah. I had a criminal record. You had a little bit of a record. And, um, and, and so uh, my, my friend got word back that you know, they were they said, yeah, go ahead, make, make what you want to make. So I did it with their blessing, but not in official conjunction at all. I uh, I just did it like in the same way that I would do something protesting things I didn't like. I decided I would do something in support of someone that I thought could be maybe, a, you know, a Trojan horse in the U.S. political system, that somebody that I, I thought really seemed like he could be a transformative figure that, um, you know, was more unique than what you usually get at the at the top of the ticket and how quickly did that spread like wildfire did it spread fairly quickly it it, um well it it did which was amazing i did the poster i um i did a short interview with a blog i put the poster up for sale uh i sold 350 and made 350 to put up on the street and you know i said on my website i'm using the money from the first 350 to print 10,000 more posters to give away. Um, and, and immediately, you know, those sold out. I made a free download. The download went out within two weeks. Um, this was still when Google had pages instead of just a, you know, a, a, a continuous feed. In, within two weeks, there were 200 pages on Google worth, worth of articles um, just on that. And uh, 2008. Yeah, in 2008. Yeah. 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 So, so, um, and then, you know... Um, he wrote you a letter, did he not? He wrote me a letter about, about a month after I created it because it had already gone viral in such a major way. And I was working with my friend Yossi Serjant, who was a PR guy who was a political activist also, who he was highly motivated, and he started helping to facilitate the printing of posters and stickers. And we quickly had printed 500,000 stickers and 300,000 posters, Amazing. which were all given away. So you really um, helped, I guess, I would say that you had a, a, a big part in sort of him in the election. I mean, it's got to feel pretty incredible to know that you made such a big difference with your art. Well, I don't know if you it, see you it know, as that, but I it, do, because I feel like that was a part of the imaging of that entire campaign. It, it, it's, um, 
if it helped at all, I'm I'm very happy. And I was uh, what what I was moved by was that um, something that was a grassroots tool of activism caught fire and demonstrated to people that um, you know they're not they don't have to just be spectators in democracy. Most people think um, not only all I can do is vote is maybe even why even vote because all the special interests have these backroom deals with the with the politicians right. anyway. So sure. my my vote doesn't even really matter much. But seeing how that worked and how a lot of people said, you know, I think this is moving the needle on Obama's campaign made me proud to be able to say my belief that every action matters is manifested here. Definitely. So, Pretty incredible. Get off your ass. Definitely. And, and since that, so 2008, fast forward now, we're at 2019 here. You've done so much. So you have an ad agency. You have your clothing line. You obviously do a ton of art and you have your books. You have art shows. There, there's, I don't know what the, you're not doing because I feel like there's so many things that you're doing at this point. So take us to, to now and, and, and obviously in, in terms of like the marking of art, and I always like to talk about this, you know, Art is marketed in such a different way now, right? You look at Banksy, he was selling his own art in Central Park. You know, obviously the famous shredded picture. Yeah. How do you think that the marketing of art has changed from when you first started with the stickering to now with the internet and whatnot, and, and just the way that you sort of get it out there in the world? Well, the internet's made a huge difference because now every artist who um, has the, the will to have an unmediated relationship with their audience, they can do that. And it's very important to me. My work was always about democratization and empowerment and and so um not that i have a problem with galleries or or museums i think they serve you know some more worthwhile functions but um for me to both sell inexpensive things like stickers and t-shirts and prints uh, you know as well as paintings is um is important and so you know the old gallery systems based on restrict the supply to increase the demand and then charge more for these expensive sort trophies. of elitist yeah elitist and 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 i'm um you know i want to be able to spend time on paintings that i'm proud of that i can um you know sell for uh, what i think they deserve to be you know paid for and and um but at the same time that's not that that's only one small facet of of who i am as an artist my you know my main thing is to try to get people to see how they can participate creatively in the world. And for me, it's visual art, but it's more, this is an example, it's a case study, a template for whatever your way of interfacing with the world could be. Definitely. So it's changed dramatically, obviously, and, and you have a lot of stuff that you've done to change the world. In terms of uh, your activist stuff that you're doing now, too, I mean, is there a cause that you're behind that you really feel strongly about um, now? Because obviously you've, there's been a lot of things that you've gotten behind over the years. So Yeah, there's a lot of them, unfortunately. <laughs> and anyone in particular <laughs> the world, that you're The world is pretty We're in a weird place. We're in a weird place. Well, climate change is something that I'm really worried about because that's, you know, that's going to threaten everyone's existence and yeah. you know it doesn't doesn't matter uh which which team you're on politically if there's there's no stadium left yeah if there's <laughs> nothing know, left but, um, there's nothing left yeah, to say but, but the um you know i think right now the 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 fear and division that's being stoked uh you know racism sexism xenophobia is really problematic because um you know we we've done so much uh, over the years to try to combat um, systemic inequality and then to try to turn that into a brand politically is very disheartening. So everything I can do to support things like the um, ACLU immigrant rights initiative, um, 
Black Lives Matter, a lot, a lot of a lot of different things um, that are, uh, you know, about. I just did a thing with the Lower East Side Girls Club in New York. Awesome. Um, and you have your own gallery too, so I imagine that some of that's in Silver Lake, right? Yeah, it's in Echo Park. It's, it's right, Echo Park. Right, right, right by Dodger Stadium, Sunset. It's called Subliminal Projects, subliminalprojects.com. We do shows with a lot of um, emerging artists, some more established artists, and then we do a lot of um, workshops and other, and other sort of uh, you know, activist things. Um, we've, got a, we've got a show coming up about uh, collaboration with Parks Project, which is about... Um, preserving our national park system amazing you know? so you have the ad agency too is the ad agency on top yeah the, yeah the ad agency is um i wouldn't say it's on top but it's well, upstairs it's, on, it's upstairs right? um, yeah, you have, you have yeah. about 20 um, people working there which is pretty cool right yeah and um you know i do very little uh on the day-to-day uh creating work for the agency but i'm supervising the work i'm looking at all the work and um, I'm working on my my own art, but I'm you know I have a close relationship with all the designers, and um, I love I love working with a lot of the people that we work with because um, you know yeah they're they're a business, but usually they're coming to us because they like where we're coming from philosophically as as an agency. So there's sort of a a synergy in you know art, commerce, philosophy, which is you know it's kind of a, the ideal situation in life. Definitely. Um, what do you think of artists that, because I've been to certain artist studios that uh, shall remain nameless that are pretty well known that have teams doing their stuff, but they're not almost involved at all, right? And it's almost like they're producers at that point. But I'm, I'm sure there's a combination of stuff where you can, you know, make the first print and whatnot, and then your team can sort of execute that. But do you have thoughts on how that process works now? Uh, you know, from the beginning, you were always super involved and hands-on. And now when yeah. you become more of a brand, you need to sort of factor out some of this stuff, right? Well, the... the um you know, my clothing line is uh, any clothing line that's decent scale. There's no way that one person can do it all. So I'm the creative director for the brand. Obey I, the clothing. Yeah, yeah. I, I do about dot com. 80, 80, <laughs> um, 60 to 80 T-shirt graphics a year are done by me. But I also have designers that um, work in my studio who help supplement the design there. When it comes to the design and the illustration um, for my own art, I'm doing all of that myself, but I have art assistants that help to execute printing and aspects whatnot. of it. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and, and, uh, I, I'm doing the best I can to find the balance between quality and, and quantity because we, you know, we live in a time where people are very impatient. If you t- did a huge show six months ago, but then, you know, you, with 200 pieces, six weeks later, people are like, yeah, but that was like six weeks ago. What's <laughs> right. what's next, man? It's all about the next thing. So I'm, um, you know, I'm constantly trying to balance the, the the quality of the output with needing to deal with the rapid metabolism of our culture. Yeah. What are some of your favorite portraits that you've done? Because you've done a lot of iconic portraiture. So what what are some of your favorites? Well, uh, I really I'm I'm proud of the series I did for the Women's March. The um, yeah the We the People series, because they weren't famous people. They represented archetypes and with a, with a degree of humanity that even if they weren't the typical religion or ethnicity, that they still felt equally American and equally human. So I, I'm, I'm proud of those. I've been sort of building off of that series. But I, uh, I, you know, I'm happy with the Punk Rock Icon series. I, I love did that in series. The early 2000s with um, uh, Joey Ramone, Johnny Rotten, um, Joe Strummer, Glenn Danzig and Ian Mackay from Minor, Minor Threat. You know, I, I like a lot of the um, hip hop portraits that I've done of LL Cool J, Slick Rick, 
especially Chuck D from Public Enemy. Yeah. I've done several portraits of him. Did they all sit for you or were those portraits you just took from images that you had? They were all um, things where I either got the reference photos from, um, from the subject or from uh, a photographer that was uh, down to collaborate. Cool. And, uh, you know, I have um, frequently taken my own photos of subjects when I can, but, um, but you know, sometimes people are not still in their prime. Yeah. And I want to, uh, you know, I want to make an illustration of them at, uh, at what I think is sort of their, their iconic uh, peak essence. Yeah, hey, I just actually had my buddy Mick Rock on the show, who I believe you know pretty oh, yeah. well. Yeah, and Mick so, and I have collaborated. Yeah, yeah, he was speaking. Uh, your name came up, and uh, he was talking about some projects you guys have done or doing yeah. whatever. Yeah, so, Mick. Mick is great. I mean, he's yeah. got the absolute best Bowie images. Exactly, that, and, and Queen, and, and yeah, yeah, and and um, Iggy, and great Iggy stuff. Definitely, too. definitely. Lou Reed. So yeah, so 2019. Again, there's probably nothing that you're not doing because you're doing so much. But what's on the slate for 2019 for you? Well, this is the 30th year since I started doing street art, since amazing, I cre created amazing. the Andre sticker. So, um, yeah, I have a series of shows called um, Facing the Giant, Three Decades of Descent. And Where can we um, see that? There is, uh, there's a show in New York called, well, in Brooklyn. In Beyond the Streets? Williams, yes, yeah. Beyond the Streets. Yeah. And I have a big section in that show, but it's a beautiful show with 150 artists and 100,000 square feet. That's up until August 25th. Um, in L.A., I'll be doing my big show November 9th at a gallery called Over the Influence. Great. Awesome. And then, obviously, more books. Yeah. you got the ad agency yeah. and more, more I'm, shows. I'm, I'm about to hit 100 painted murals. Amazing. So I think I'm going to do a book of the 100 murals, but I'm not sure when that will come out because I have a lot on my plate. But I, I, you know, I try to um, make sure that there's good documentation of all my murals so I have the raw material to put a good book together. Yeah, I was looking at your website. It's interesting because you have your murals sort of pinpointed on like a Google map. It's almost like a treasure hunt, right? Because I was <laughs> yeah. like, where do I find some of these murals? And you kind of have to search for them. But there's also one in the Warner Brothers building, I think Jen pointed out, right, that you just did, yeah, which yeah. is great. They have a new yeah. headquarters downtown. So that's awesome, man. I really enjoyed talking to you. It's awesome. So you are listening to Lip Service Shepherd Ferry. Check out all of Shepherd's projects. Your website? ObeyGiant.com. Instagram at Obey Giant. This was a, a real pleasure. I knew I'd have a fun time talking, brother. I appreciate it. Yeah, and so. uh, Shepherd Fair, everything. Check it out, guys. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Lips LA with Scott Lips. Hey, Dennis Quaid here, and I want to tell you about The Orange Street. Now, I have recently started a podcast network called Audio Up, and much as I prepare for movie roles, I've been researching the podcast landscape and listening to hundreds of podcasts. One in particular stopped me in my tracks. The Orange Street. It's a true crime podcast series told with such authenticity and care by Haley Butler and Tinu Thomas, two journalists who were University of Texas students when they started reporting on the story. It's about the 2005 murder of a young woman named Jennifer Cave near the University of Texas at Austin campus. What struck me most was the thorough examination of the case and the exclusive access granted to these two young reporters. What makes this true crime story so unique is their perspective. There are two young women who are the same age as Jennifer Cave and at very similar points in their lives. The Orange Tree is engaging, it's thoughtful, and really, really powerful. 
Take a listen to The Orange Tree on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts today. Well, hey there. Hey, Dennis Quaid is here. That's right. And guess what? I have a podcast. It's called The Denaissance, and I think you should listen. I'm having some really cool conversations with some really interesting people like music legend Billy Ray Cyrus, housewife of Beverly Hills, Garcelle Bouvet, and many, many more. Listen to The Denaissance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. y'all i'm uncle drank star of the ballad of uncle drank it is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me fictional golf and western country music pioneer uncle drank the series also stars luke wilson brian kelly chelsea lynn kinky friedman and billy zane as a talking blender named blendy you can find the ballad of uncle drank on sirius xm pandora stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts 